0: comes from Ruth chapter 1. You can find it on page 262 in your Pew Bibles. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Emilek, em- Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to our people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my room that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God." Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also of anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth and the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Zoe. Before we look at this passage that Zoe read for us, let me pray. Our gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the way in which you speak to us through your word, for your word is truth and it is the authority of our lives. And even with a text like we have before us today, a text that is challenging in its own ways, We ask that you would speak to us, that you would open our ears and our hearts, and that your spirit would move among us, that we would see the glorious truth in your word, the comfort that is found here, Lord, and that we would know your loving kindness that comes only through Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. So God has certainly given us a timely book to study over the next four weeks, considering all that's going on in our world. We're praying for the crisis that's happening in Afghanistan, the devastation that's caused by the natural disasters we hear about in Haiti, the wildfires in California and Canada, the increasing concern over the Delta variant of the COVID-19 virus. And that's not even to mention the personal challenges that we're facing in our lives. Living life in the midst of loss, living life in the midst of receiving bad or disappointing news, living life When we feel like we can't really even catch one break, we're stretched and stressed and sometimes think to ourselves, God, where are you in all of this? And then we have the book of Ruth, which is a short story set in the time of the judges that over the course of four acts shows us that God is in control. It reminds us that God works for good. And it shows us that the God of the universe not only has the big picture in mind, his grand plan for all things as he upholds, directs, disposes, and governs your life and my life and all things, but how he's intimately involved in the details of our lives, how he's intimately involved in the details of the lives of the characters whom we'll come to know in this book, namely Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. God's hand, though often hidden at the moment, is always moving us to where we need to be, often working out his grand plans through the ordinary, everyday details of life. So I hope that our time in Ruth will do a few things for us. One, I hope that it will challenge us to look at the ordinary things of life with a greater sense of the divine, knowing that God is at work in those moments that to us often seem so mundane and so insignificant. I hope that it encourages us to reflect on our lives, the good parts and the bad, that we would see the hidden hand of God and how he is working. And I hope it stokes in us a greater sense of wonder, knowing that God will do marvelous things according to his will that we would totally not expect. This is a short book. Just four chapters, four acts, but it's a profound book. So let's get started. We're going to begin by looking at Act 1, which Zoe read, which is Ruth chapter 1. And as Zoe read that passage for us, one question came to my mind. I wonder if the same question came to your mind. Where is God when life seems to fall apart? Where is God when life seems to fall apart? And the thing that we should consider as we work through this first chapter of Ruth is that when life seems to fall apart, God is actually closer than we think. And we're going to think about this idea in a few ways today. Looking at Act 1, we're going to see what was lost in Act 1. We're going to see what was found. And we're going to ask the question, well, what's next? All to see that when life falls apart, God is closer than we think. Let me read again for us Ruth 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went out to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Killian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Our story opens us opens by telling us the time period in which Ruth is set in the days when the judges ruled. And this is actually a really important piece of information because if we know anything about the book of Judges, It should create in us as readers an expectation for what we're going to see in the characters that we're soon to meet. So what is that expectation? What's the the zeitgeist of the day of the Judges? Well, if we turn to the end of Judges chapter 21, that final verse in the book, verse 25, we read that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The way I often imagine this time of the judges is similar to what we see in those old West movies. All the desperados are running around doing whatever they want. There's a a lone sheriff who's helpless to do anything about them. He's just kind of stuck in the corner. And then we see these conflicted vigilante types come to clean up the town, if only for a while. But the, the flavor of the time is that everyone just did whatever they want, whatever was right in their own eyes. What we're gonna come to find as we work through this book is that the characters that we come to meet run well against the grain of what's expected. We'll see more of that in just a minute. But the next thing that we read is that during this time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem in Judah which forced a man named Elimelech to choose for his family, for his wife Naomi and for his two sons, whether they would stay in Bethlehem and endure the famine or search for greener, more fruitful pastures elsewhere. And some commentators will make a big deal about Elimelech's choice. They'll make it really a main emphasis of this opening act, pointing out how Elimelech's name, My God is King, creates this ironic situation, as we see Elimelech and his family actually abandon their home in God's promised land for a bite of food in the heart of Israel's enemy, Moab. And while I think there's some merits to those conversations and some good points to be made, I question whether or not we can call this a main emphasis of Act 1. The passage really doesn't give us enough insight into Elimelech's decision-making process to make it as big a point as some believe it to be. It reads very matter-of-fact. There was a famine, Elimelech, Naomi, and Malan, and Kilian. They left Bethlehem, they went to Moab, and they remained there. It's boom, boom, boom just the facts. In fact, all of the first five verses move at this blistering pace, giving us only what we need to know to move the story along. It's not actually until we come to the sections of dialogue later in the chapter that the pace of the story slows way, way down. Almost as if the author is drawing our attention to the conversations that are happening between characters rather than the facts that are there to progress the plot forward. Just think about this for a second. The author doesn't blink an eye telling us that Elimelech died in Moab and that Naomi was left with only her two sons. The author doesn't blink an eye telling us how after 10 years, Malon and Killian die and leave Naomi without her husband and without her two sons. So as the introduction closes, as we read through those first five verses, the heart of act one is really revealed. The spotlight centers on Naomi A woman who has left her home with an empty stomach but a full heart, with a husband, with two sons, and yet, after only five verses, she is left without. She has lost essentially everything that she had come to this foreign country with. Naomi's perspective throughout this first act is raw, and it often resonates with us because we've been in those shoes that she's walking in. We know the emptiness of life, that hollow feeling that comes with loss, as if pieces of us are left behind. These are feelings that aren't only associated when we lose a loved one, a family member, as as Naomi has, but they're feelings that we experience when our last child maybe moves out of the house and we're there by ourselves for the first time, when we feel distant from our spouse, when there's a sharp conflict between a good friend and ourselves, when we're fighting with physical or mental challenges. It's a feeling of somehow being less than whole. Naomi goes on to describe this as feeling bitter and empty. But from our vantage point as readers, we see something that Naomi doesn't see in her time of grief. We see that she's actually gained something through her time in Moab. That though she's lost two sons, she's actually found two daughters. She has Orpah and she has Ruth, one of whom God will use in a miraculous way to alter Naomi's life. As we continue, look with me at verses 6 and 7. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi, hearing that the famine was over, that the Lord had again rescued his people, decides now's the right time to go back there's nothing left for me here in Moab. Let me return home." And as we said, this is where the story slows way down. Because Naomi has a very clear idea of what this journey will look like. It's not gonna be a caravan road trip back to Bethlehem with her, with her new daughters. No, this is gonna be a solo trek for her back home, by herself. As we read verses 6-18, through 18, we see that these verses contain three speeches, two by Naomi and one by Ruth. And each of Naomi's monologues start the same way, with her commanding her daughters to go and to return, to leave her and go back to the life that they had in Moab prior to marrying into Naomi's family. And I think it's important for us to see that this isn't, this isn't some kind of shunning from Naomi to these women as if Naomi didn't want anything to do with them. This is actually, in her own way, an act of Naomi loving these two girls. This becomes very clear in her second speech, but even in verses 8 and 9, we see her command them to go and to return, but then she follows that command with words of blessing. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them and lifted up their voices and wept. Naomi urges them to go and to leave and to return to their lives that they had before. But after doing that, she prays that God would show them the same kindness The same kindness to Orpah and Ruth in the same way that they had shown kindness to her and the family that she no longer had. The word translated kindness there is the same Hebrew word that we've actually talked a lot about lately in our sermon series. It's that word hesed. It's that tricky Hebrew word that's really hard to pin down with a definition because one English word just doesn't do it justice. That's why we see it have so many variations in the Old Testament, but I think One commentator, Daniel Block, captures its meaning well when he says hesed, wraps up all of the positive attributes of God, love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness. He says in short, it's that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another regardless of the cost. Naomi acknowledging how Ruth and Orpah had shown this kind of hesed to her and to her family, Praise that God would show the very same loving kindness to them. She urges them to essentially start their lives over again in Moab. Settle down, find a husband, make a life for yourself here. As Naomi finishes her first plea, the girls, fighting through tears, tell Naomi, we're not going to stay. We're going to go with you. We're going to be with you. We're going to be part of your people. And it's a response that just opens a floodgate for Naomi. As if she was at first trying to hold back the the raw intensity of her emotions in this situation. It's just now all laid on the table. And her second monologue is just filled with such intensity for how Naomi feels about this situation. We can see her with tears streaming down her face saying to these young women, Girls, you need to go. Why would you want to stay with me? You have no future with me. I have no more sons for you to marry. I am well past my years to even have children. If by a miracle of God I were to have a husband tonight and to get pregnant and to have a son, are you even going to wait for him to be grown so that you can marry him? Are you willing to throw away your future for that? I have nothing to offer. God is against me, you are better off without me. I find that we often try to love like Naomi. We attempt to love people by saving them from having to endure with us in our pain and our grief and our hardships, by pushing them away, by holding them at arm's length. And that often happens by putting up a hard exterior. People ask, how are you doing? How can I help? What can I do? What do you need? And we play it off. I'm fine. It's just, it's just life. I'm, I'm okay. Don't worry about me. And we think our intentions are good. We don't want other people to take on our suffering. We're trying to protect them the way that Naomi was trying to protect her daughters. But I think Scripture convicts us that this is not the way of Jesus nor his people. We remember when our Lord went to pray at Gethsemane, that night that he was arrested. And he told his friends how his soul was sorrowful even unto death. And that what he needed from them in that moment was just to sit and to watch and to pray with him. Sit and watch and be with him while he prayed. So we can learn from Naomi how to let people love us. But on the flip side... We can ask, well, how do we engage those who are hurting that seem to be holding people back at arm's length? Ed Welsh, who some of you may know as a writer and counselor, he tells a story about a woman who was grieving not unlike Naomi. Her husband had just passed, and he watched her sit in the front pew of a church during his memorial service. And people in the church knew her, though not very well, she was a bit of a private person. And everything about her body language said, leave me alone. Leave me alone. And most people did just that, gave her space. Except the woman that sat right behind her in the pew. The woman behind her never stopped touching this woman. And as Welsh saw this, he recalls just how he thought it was so impolite. That's such a bold thing to do. But it was almost as if this pew minister was on a mission to break through the leave me alone barriers. How do we engage those who are hurting when we're held at arm's length? We keep pursuing them, that they would know our love and our concern and our care for them in their times of need. Naomi's final speech convinces Orpah, that she is better off staying in Moab, but not Ruth. Naomi tries one last time to get Ruth to follow her sister-in-law before Ruth responds with perhaps the most well-known words from this opening chapter, verses 16 and 17. We hear Ruth say, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Let's just pause for a second to consider Ruth's situation. Ruth is a young, widowed woman. She is a Moabite, a longtime enemy of Israel. She is an outsider and a nobody with everything stacked against her as she moves to Bethlehem. Her future seems bleak, and in the words of one commentator, he writes, Ruth was not merely relocating her home. She is committing her life to Naomi. In doing so, she is also committing her life to Naomi's God, whom she calls as a witness by his personal name, the Lord. She is even willing to die and to be buried in Naomi's land, the land of Naomi's God, not the gods of the Moabites. Given the the intimate connection between land and deity in the ancient Near East and the importance of proper burial for a restful afterlife, this was the ultimate commitment in the ancient world. She further binds herself to do this with an oath. If she fails on her promise to stay with Naomi, she invites the Lord, Naomi's God, to stretch out his hand and to strike her down. Here is an astonishing act of surrender and self-sacrifice Ruth was laying down her entire life to serve Naomi. And in making this commitment to Naomi, Ruth once again shows us the hesed of God. The way that she cared for her mother-in-law, acting for Naomi's benefit no matter what the cost. No matter how it might affect her own future. In one sense, Ruth serves as an example to us as to how we are called to pursue others, drawing near to them, bearing their burdens. Though if we're honest, even on our best days, we can't love others with this level of commitment and desire. We run into barriers that we can't overcome. But thankfully, there is one who pursues us, and there is no barriers that will stop him. And that's Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2 how we walked around with this leave-me-alone posture, with our arms stuck out, holding God at arm's length. We were fine to live lives our way. We didn't want God coming after us. We put our hands up and said, God, you know what? Mm -hmm. I'm okay. You don't have to come any further. And maybe that's still some of us Here today, some of us watching, you're not really sure you need God in your life. You're not really even sure you want him there. But that doesn't stop him from pursuing us. We couldn't stop him if we tried. Because God, like that woman in the pew, is on a mission. And in Luke 19.10, words that we've already said in this service this morning, Jesus tells us what that mission is. That his mission is to seek and to save the lost. To seek and to save the lost. As this ultimate display of God's hesed, his loving kindness towards us. Again, Paul in Ephesians 2 writes that, But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. For that is by grace that we are saved and that we are raised up with Jesus. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places with Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus. For by grace we have been saved through faith And this is a gift of God, not anything that we have done. Hesed encompasses the love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness found in our God. It's a word that in every way tries to define who God is. And it's a word that we can use to point to the depth of love that Jesus has showed for sinners like us at the cross where he died in our place for our sins taking the wrath of God that we deserved upon himself, the innocent for the guilty, the perfect for the blemished, the holy for the vile. In short, Jesus's commitment to his beloved to rescue them regardless of the cost. By his blood, our sins are forgiven. We are made right with God and given a new life, charged with the power of the spirit as God's children. And as Paul says, this is all a gift, a gift of our Lord for everyone who would believe in him and affirm that it is only by the great love of God shown through Jesus Christ that we are truly forgiven of our sins and made alive. In this season of bitterness and emptiness and loss, Naomi actually found something in this time, or rather we would say God gave her someone. She had Ruth a daughter who was willing to walk with Naomi through these hardships. And She found a blessing from the Lord in her. But from our vantage point, it appears that Naomi wasn't in a place where she would see what a blessing Ruth was in her life, at least not yet. Because as the chapter closes, there remains a big question mark on what happens next. Look with me at verses 19 through 22. We read that, so the two of them, Naomi and Ruth, they went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me that the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. As act one ends, we see how it's framed by these themes of fullness and emptiness. Naomi begins this chapter full, and she ends it empty. Naomi tells the woman who, women who greet her in Bethlehem how the Lord has dealt bitterly with her during her time and her years in Moab, so much so that she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me by my, the name that you knew me by, which means pleasant. Call me Mara. That's who I am. It means bitter. Almost as if Naomi was assuming this identity upon herself. And she attributes all this to the hand of the Lord. The end of the chapter leaves us at this low point where we the readers are meant to feel like we're in that boat with Naomi. We feel bitter and empty after reading this account. Is this really the resolution? We wanna ask, well, what's, what's next? This can't be it. And the only answer we have is we don't know. This chapter leaves us in suspense. And quite frankly, Naomi is right. The tragedies she faced in Moab are in God's hands. Nothing is out of his control. And the question that we're left with is why? Why would God allow this to happen? As we study the book of Ruth, we realize quickly that this is a book that has God's providence on full display. And that word providence comes from two words, pro, that means forward or before, and vidir, which means to see. So we might think that providence is talking about seeing beforehand or seeing forward, implying some kind of foreknowledge, that God is is looking uh, through time to see what will happen. And it's true that God is all-knowing. He knows perfectly past, present, and future, but Words don't always mean what their parts suggest. Rather, providence means to supply what is needed. We get a clear idea of what providence means by thinking about the word provide. Providence is the way in which God purposely provides for, sustains, and governs the world. It's his active and intentional care to ensure that what he has promised for us actually does come to pass. And as we consider the low note that the chapter ends on, let me just point you to the quote that's in your bulletin from Thomas Watson, because we never want to say that evil things of their own nature are good. They are not. They remind us of sin and the curse, and we groan for these things, knowing that this world is not as it should be. But the wise and overruling hand of God can use them for good. Watson gives us the picture of a clock, the wheels of a watch that seem to move contrary to one another, and yet they all carry the motions of the watch forward. So that things that seem to move contrary to God's children, things that seem to be so wrong and evil, yet by the wonderful providence of God, works for their good. Writer and theologian John Feinberg tells a story of when his wife, Pat, was diagnosed with Huntington's disease. It's a genetically transmitted disease that causes deterioration in the brain, that causes the loss of physical and psychological abilities. And John and Pat were not only concerned about the future of her health, but of their children's health. Because if one parent has the gene for Huntington's, the children of that parent have a 50-50 chance of suffering the same disease. What was also troubling to John, as as this news was revealed to them, was the fact that they had no warning that Huntington's was a possibility for his wife. And they should have been warned. Soon after her diagnosis, they requested copies of Pat's mother's medical records to see if there was any family history of the disease. And they discovered that Pat's mother had suffered from Huntington's unbeknownst to the family. And Feinberg talks about how angry he felt in that moment, realizing that this diagnosis that came five years before he met his his wife could have altered everything in his life. But in his book, The Many Faces of Evil, Feinberg talks about how he wrestled with this, this tragedy in his life and these questions of where God was in his life. And he came to the realization that the hidden knowledge was actually a gift of God's grace. He says, for 20 years that information had been there, and at any time we could have found it out. Why then did God not give it to us until 1987? As I wrestled with that question, I began to see his love and concern for us. God kept it hidden because he wanted me to marry Pat, who is a wonderful wife. My life would be impoverished without her, and I would have missed the blessings of being married to her had I known earlier. God wanted our three sons to be born. Each is a blessing and a treasure, but we would have missed that had we known earlier. And God knew that we needed to be in a community of brothers and sisters in Christ at church and at the seminary who would love us and care for us at this darkest hour. And so he withheld that information, not because he accidentally overlooked giving it to us, not because he is an uncaring God who delights in seeing his children suffer, He withheld it as a sign of his great care for us. There is never a good time to receive such devastating news, but God knew that this was exactly the right time. And there is a mystery to God's providence. And it's a mystery that we don't understand. How God in his perfect wisdom works everything, even the worst of evils, for good but the Bible gives us numerous examples that this is true. We can look at the story of Joseph in Genesis, of Job, and we can look here in the book of Ruth. In the end, the doctrine of providence, as John Feinberg's story reminds us, is a call for us to trust in God who even in our darkest hours shows us his loving kindness and his displays of his perfect wisdom over our lives and who has shown us his loving kindness so powerfully In Jesus Christ that when life seems to fall apart God is always closer than we think in the words of the Apostle Paul he is working all things all things for the good of his children and this is true for Ruth and Naomi as we're left with this cliffhanger of a chapter God is working all things for their good and it's true for all of us who trust in the Lord Let's pray. Our gracious, loving God, we're thankful for passages like this that remind us of your providence, of your perfect control over all things and how you are directing them, governing them, guiding them for good working out your grand plan, but also working in the details of each one of our lives for the good of all of those who would call upon Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord, we don't understand this, but help us to trust in what this passage teaches, that it is true. We thank you for it in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In response to God's word,